Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and I need to give a warning to all the listeners. If my voice sounds a little off, that is because I am fighting a really bad cold and I'm a little loopy because I'm on cold medicine. Luckily, or maybe unluckily for me, I'm not sure, my guest is also sick and on a lot of cold medicine. And so this should be a really interesting exercise in trying to be clear-headed while talking about a very serious issue. You are going to all be excited about my guest because he's one of the most popular guests on the show. Everybody sends me feedback all the time. This is one of the most popularly cited podcasts whenever this guest is on. Joe Geisner, can you say hello? Hello, and hello, Lindsay. Um, and most will probably consider me sick in the head. So this should fit right in that we're both sick right now. Well, that's a given. Yeah. So <laughs> for those who don't remember, Joe Geisner did uh, two episodes for us back in the day about uh, violence in, in 1850s Utah, I believe. And Joe is really such a good resource. I know so many people who, when they're working on projects, not just myself, but many others who will email Joe and say, hey, do you have an article or do you know a topic or a book on this specific topic? And Joe is sort of like an encyclopedia and you know everything. You're very kind. Thank you. And I, I love history, definitely love history. And my first love has always been, um, well, besides my wife, has always been uh, um, books. So I, I enjoy reading. And we cover your background a little bit in some of the first episodes that you were on. So I'll make sure I link to that. But uh, Joe, the reason I brought you on today is you have um, a good knowledge, I would say a very good grasp on a lot of the violent parts of Mormon history. And we're talking about massacres. Of course, my the episodes before this sort of set it up. I have this theory of mimetic violence and perhaps how Mormonism plays into this idea of this energy that being persecuted and how that energy has to be accounted for. So today we're going to talk about a lot of the violent massacres. And it's surprising because, you know, we know that there were a lot of mob violence in the early church and then in the frontier period, lots of massacres. But there's also some modern violence too. So we're going to talk about all of that. Again, if you can forgive our voices but Joe, where do you think we should start off? Well, um, there, and you know, I forgot to look up the the source for it, but it, we can do that later. Is um, Mike Quinn did an article for Sunstone, and he deals with violence during the life of Joseph Smith, and so I really think we we should let that stand alone. There's only really one thing I wanted to add. Um, about Joseph Smith, and then, um, and then some new, some actually some new information and new documents that have become available since Mike Quinn did that article. So that's that's what I was thinking. Um, okay, let's get into that then. Okay, um, you know, in Missouri. Missouri played a really important role in the Mormon psyche um, on on so many levels on on the Zion um, 
building Zion and being a Zion people and, and doing all that. Missouri was central in that. And it, it really changed. And Mike Quinn details that is that Missouri, when the mob attacked the Mormons in independence and they um, expelled the Mormons and they expelled the, or they, they tore down the printing shop and they tarred and feathered uh, Edward Partridge. Um, that changed everything. And Joseph Smith's revelations moved into much more military style. Um, and, and that came back to haunt the Mormons over and over again. So on, here's an example of that. And what was going on? He's on December 16, 1843. Um, the Mormons were discussing the redress petitions and grievance, their redress grievances that they were going to send to Congress. And Joseph Smith spoke about his hopes on that petition. But then he said, By virtue of the holy priesthood vested in me, and in the name of Jesus Christ, that if Congress will not hear our petition and grant our protection, they shall be broken up as a government, and God shall damn them, and there shall nothing be left of them, not even a grease spot. So, you, you know, this is, the anger is, is amazing. In fact, the Holy Order, which Joseph Smith started in, in 1842, I believe it was April of 1842, the the prayer circle was the intent of the prayer circle was to bring down the powers of God so the Mormons would be able to go back to Missouri. So so even something as basic as um, a prayer circle had that tie-in. Um, in Journal of Mormon History. Volumes 34.2 and, and 34.3, Bill Shepard, William Shepard, he wrote two articles that he titled The Concept of a Rejected Gospel. And this, I think this is about 10 years ago that these articles were done. And, and we can link to those so that people, people can see them. Um, and, and in the first article, Oh, and by the way, Bill is a Strangite. Um, he lives in Ohio, and the Strangites are quite interesting in and of themselves. So he actually has he has never been a member of the Utah Church, though he attends the Mormon History Association. He attends the John Whitmer Historical Association. He's very well known in the historical community. He's written numerous articles and books. Um, He's collaborated on an important book about the apostles who, who disassociated themselves with Mormon, Utah Mormonism particularly, but, but even Joseph Smith's Mormonism called uh, Lost Apostles. So Bill did this uh, article, and in the article he brings up the Heber Kimball address that was done on April 8th, 1845 at Congress, sorry, I'm sorry, at conference. Um, and here's what he says. This is really important to this subject. 
What is the object, do you suppose, of making the proclamation for all the saints to gather in from the United States? And by the way, Kimball has been talking about how important it is to bring, after the, the murders of Joseph and Hiram Smith, to bring all the Mormons throughout the world into Nauvoo. Even the Mormons who were like in Iowa and stuff like that, they're bringing all those people in for multiple reasons. Uh, one is to help build the temple. One is to help build the Nauvoo house. Another is uh, for safety reasons. So anyway, so, so getting back to what Heber Kimball is saying, he says, we want them here that they may help us build the temple and the Nauvoo house. And we want them to bring their firelocks and learn to use them and keep them well cleaned and loaded and primed so that they will go off the first shot, that every man may be in readiness and prepared. That is, every man shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. He then holds up his cane to show them how they're supposed to uh, be in defense. That is why we want the brethren to stay in the city of Joseph as much as possible. Now, that is code, the, gospel, the preparation for the gospel of peace. That's code for what he brings out later in his talk. But first he talks about women, and I think it's interesting to see the direction he's going in. He says, we have had our women insulted many times by men in Warsaw, who are the meanest people that ever God suffered to live. If our women should call there, the gentlemen there would very politely desire to in introduction to them, and they will be so obliging to wait upon them at the table, and etc. And you would think they were the finest men in the world, but they do this for the purpose of destroying the females. I saw this myself, and I wish I had the preparation of the gospel. Code for guns, for being ready to act upon, to destroy those people. Then, he, then Kimball then says that, and this is the editor actually saying what he did. He proposed that the fellowship from the Gentiles in equity was done, or proposed to withdraw fellowship, I'm sorry, proposed to withdraw fellowship from the Gentiles in equity, which was done by a unanimous vote. And then Kimball says, now they are disfellowshipped. This is a final decision of all matters before this conference. Now, Joe, I want to interrupt you for just a minute, because when we talked about the Steptoe expedition, you know, in the 1850s, later on after this, Heber Kimball shows up with this rhetoric, too, about women. And it is my opinion that sort of the modesty rhetoric, the sexist rhetoric around women doesn't really start with Joseph Smith. It starts with Kimball and probably Young. And that is why I want to tie this violence with women and eventually polygamy. Can you can you delve into that a little bit more for us? Well, I, I think, you know, at least if I understand um, what we're talking about is that uh, I think it's pretty clear in this, you know, all the way back in 1845, April, um, that Campbell sees 
um, every man who's a Gentile. And, and we, we need to talk about what a Gentile is. Because a gen, and it, particularly in this time, a Gentile is anyone who is not Mormon, who is not American Indian, or who is not Israelite or Jewish. So that's pretty much the entire world. Uh, because unfortunately, um, the American Indians have been pretty well wiped out by this point. So, any so what what I think Kimball is doing is seeing that all men outside of that are um, at, only after one thing, and that's after Mormon women, and to destroy their virtue. I mean, everything is has that sexual connotation in it, in my opinion. Um, and now, at this point, how many uh, Heber Kimball would have been brought into the principle? He had been introduced to it earlier by Joseph Smith, so he knew about polygamy. And this idea that outsiders are threatening, I think, directly correlates with plural marriage, because once you set plural marriage aside as this higher law, this higher order, there is no place for outside men. There is a place for outside women if we can convert them, but this is where we start to see this doctrine. Now, Native Americans, in my opinion, weren't as big of a threat to white women um, because it appears to me that at this time, these men would have seen Native American women as possible concubines, if you will, but they didn't really leave a place for Native American men to marry the women. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. And, and, and remember that the polygamist wives um, could not be identified as wives. So a young woman, well, though Sarah, I was going to say that um, um, Sarah Whitney, who actually uh, Kimball then ended up marrying her after uh, Joseph Smith was murdered in Carthage, um, that, that uh, young women like that, or even his own daughter, uh, Helen Kimball, who didn't, I don't think she ended up marrying um, uh, Whitney um, until uh, at least sometime after this. So his own daughter, who had been a, a wife of, uh, of Joseph Smith, you know, they're looked at as a single women by how it would make sense that men would pull a chair out thinking that these were women who weren't married, you know, or, or serve them or even asked to buy them, you know, something, whether at dinner or a drink or whatever. Um, you know, again, thinking that these were single women. And so, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, this, this over sexualization of everything being done because these were their wives and in their head, at least not by the law, but by, but in their heads. Um, and so, yeah, I agree with you. I think you're absolutely right. So sorry, I want you to move forward, but I do have some questions about council 50. So the way that I present Joseph is that Joseph is sort of more egalitarian in his ideas about women. He has more sexually fluid ideas about women but Joseph also, especially towards the later end of his life, starts to develop more violent rhetoric with the Council of Fifty and things like that. So I want you to talk about that. I want you to talk about the Council of the Fifty Minutes, especially since those have been published. And I want you to, if you can, if you'd like to speculate 
on what influences Joseph to become more violent in his rhetoric? Well, you took my thunder. <laughs> I uh, this is the big deal. Uh, this count these council of fifty minutes are shocking. I've had people ask me. They say, "Well, what's the best part?" And I say, "Every page is the best part." I, these these council of fifty minutes are amazing. Um, the Joseph Smith Papers people. Um, did excellent uh, footnotes. They, they've opened up documents um, that we were at least unfamiliar with. Um, if it, you know, if, if, even if they had not been uh, made available or, or just uh, because of the, the amount of documents, um, the, the church needs a huge, huge um recognition on making these minutes available these minutes are the most explosive minutes and or the well actually it's the most explosive document i have ever read um i couldn't put it down i could not put the volume down it's i don't know it's 700 and some pages or 800 and some pages and 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 it's minutes you know most people go how can you read minutes well these minutes are amazing um so that's just an introduction of how important this is. And, and this is the stuff that Mike Quinn didn't have access to when he did his article for Sunstone. So uh, what, what caught my attention in the minutes when it came to violence was the, the idea of the, the American Indians. So, uh, and, oh, and one other thing I should bring up about the minutes is that Joseph Smith, during his time, um, those minutes that we now have in, in, that have been published that are in the original uh, document that has been published, um, those actually aren't the original. Those are, those are at least copies of copies and could be copies of copies of copies. It's really hard to know how far down. And the reason for that is, is because... Um, the rule of the Council of Fifty was after William Clayton made the minutes, he then was to read them at the next meeting. That's why they kept the minutes in the first place. Because I know you asked me, you said, well, why in the world did they even keep the minutes in the first place if they were just going to destroy them? But it was to read them at the next meeting and approve them. And then he was to walk over the fire after that meeting and burn them. Now we know he probably did that at least at some some of the times. Some of the times he might have kept them and then entered stuff into his diaries. Uh, we know we know that he, which unfortunately those have never been made available uh, to outside scholars. The only scholars that have ever got to see those are, are employees of the church, um, and and currently the Joseph Smith Papers people have those diaries the or the diary the William Clayton Nauvoo diary but but the rest of the scholarly community is not allowed access to those um, but most like what we do know at least of, of some extracts that have been made available is that Clayton would go back and write in his diary what he could remember of the meeting and okay, so and, and I was going to say too. I think I mentioned this to you that I also believe that. I mean, I don't mean to sound condescending, but in the way that you know, sometimes a bunch of men get together and want to feel important. 
writing minutes probably made it feel more official too. Sure. Sure. I think you're absolutely right. Um, well, this was the kingdom of God. This was the big deal. This was going to take over the world. And that's what we'll get into about this violence part. So, um, so, so anyway, so yeah, so Clayton then, uh, after Joseph Smith was murdered, Clayton then, um, and, and he had buried what he had. So, and we don't even know, you know, those minutes could have been destroyed from what, well, we know that they probably were destroyed. A lot of them were destroyed by water. So when he went back to put them in a record book, um, he had to, to go to his diaries. He had to go to other minutes that had been kept. And he had to go to what he had, what what little bits and pieces he had left over to create this. So what we have during Joseph Smith's lifetime are not great minutes in the sense they're not detailed. In when when Brigham Young takes over in March or February, February of 1845, that all changed. The detailed minutes are amazing. Even though they were so, still supposed to be destroyed. Uh, Clayton didn't do that at that point. He kept what he was doing. And so then when he was putting them into the book, he could, he could create amazing details. So Joseph Smith's minutes, not so good. Brigham Young's are amazing. But anyway, so already out of the shoot, Joseph Smith, March 21st, 1844 meeting, sends uh, James Emmett on a mission to the Lamanites. And his, what he's told to do is to instruct the Lamanites to, uh, to unite together and cease their enmity towards one another, uh, to be diligent and faithful that they would be pleasing in the sight of our Heavenly Father. Now, you know, you ask yourself, wait a second. Okay, why is Joseph Smith wanting to unite the Indians? Is this some benevolent thing that he wants them to not be fighting together? And then you start, as you read the minutes, and particularly once you get into the Joseph Smith's or Brigham Young minutes, you realize why Joseph Smith wants to uh, unite the Indians. So, so then William Phelps on April 11th, 1844, talking about women, says, Our women have been abused by them, meaning the Gentiles, some of whom have the name of being religious. He next referred to the red men of the forest and how the citizens of the U.S. had used them. The times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, and God will convert their riches for the use of his people. So this is laying the plan. We're uniting the Lamanites, and we're going, and the, the time of the Gentiles to receive the gospel is over because they've rejected the gospel. God is now going to take their riches. And that's a theme throughout the minutes. Brigham Young talks about we don't need to worry about getting guns because we're going to have more guns than we're going to know what to do with. Or he talks about we don't need an army because we're going to have millions of people, meaning the Lamanites, meaning the Mormons who've converted, the Jews, that they'll they'll have an army in the millions of people. So this is what's going on. So then, so now we go over to the more detailed minutes, and, and this it gives us what's going on with what Joseph Smith was saying. So in March 1845, Young talks about bringing the gospel to the uh, Lamanites and united them. 
because the the again this theme the Gentiles have rejected the gospel. He also says that this meaning uniting the 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 Lamanites was Joseph's measure, and he and and he meaning Brigham Young wants to see the Lamanites come in by the thousands, and this time has now come. So this is happening for Young in his head and in this group of men. This is happening now. Young also says the yoke of the Gentiles is broke. Their doom is sealed. There is not the least fiber can possibly be discovered that binds us to the Gentile world. The Gentiles will yet uh, yet be glad to lick the dust of the feet of the Lamanites to get their favor, and we shall live to see it. So uh, later in the same meeting, Young says that he doesn't care about preaching to the Gentiles any longer. He feels, as Lyman White said, let the damned scoundrels be killed. Let them be swept off the earth. And then we can go and be baptized for them easier than we can convert them. The Gentiles have rejected the gospel. They have killed the prophets. And those who have not taken an active part in the murder all rejoice in it and say amen to it. And that is saying that they are willing the blood of the prophets should be shed. The Gentiles have rejected the gospel. And we sh and we're, where shall we go preach? We cannot go anywhere but to the house of Israel. When I read that entry, the, those, that particular one I just read, my mouth just dropped open. I, I just, it was like, wow, that, that kill them all, kill all the, the Gentiles, because it's easier for us to baptize them for the dead. Uh, March 18th, 1845. In talking about the West move or the move West, Young says, before we get there, the Lamanites will be our friends. The Gentiles have sealed their own doom and the gospel must now go to the house of Israel. March 22nd, 1845. Young says, after getting to the West again, if we can hoist the standard of liberty, lift the ensign, and bid the nations welcome, they would come by thousands. And when we get there, those who will not bow to the celestial law will tell no tales. Uh, he will tell the plan, or I'm sorry, he will tell the plan whereby murderers can obtain salvation. For there is only one sin which cannot it can have no remedy, and that is the sin against the Holy Ghost. He knows a plan whereby Missouri might be saved. If Boggs and the ringleaders of the mob who exterminated the saints would come to Nauvoo and cast themselves at our feet and say that they have sinned a sin unto death and they are willing to submit to the law, let their heads be severed from their bodies and let their hearts run or let their hearts blood run and drench the earth and then the almighty would say they should finally be saved in some inferior kingdom if when a man comes here who is guilty of murder we would cut off his head it would be million times better for him 
than it would be to let them live. You know, people talk about the Reformation being the beginning of this blood atonement stuff. Uh, sorry, Council of 50 Minutes have blown that completely out of the water. Council of 50 Minutes have blown so many theories about when people met with William Law, um, over his, his, uh, and Wilson Law about their, their starting the Reformed Church. I mean, the, the, the Council of 50 Minutes are the hottest item that I have ever come across. As you can see, I'm pretty excited about the Council of 50 Minutes. Well, and I want to I want to talk about this because I was at the Mormon History Association this year, which was great. And I was listening to a panel with some of the brightest minds in Mormon history. It was Jan Ships, of course, one of the most famous non-Mormon historians who is excellent. Uh, there was Paul Reeves, who, of course, I respect tremendously. Robin Jensen, who's a church historian who I adore. And... Um, Oh, gosh, I'm trying to think of who else was on it. Uh, oh, uh, Richard Bushman. Um, and they were talking about these Council of 50 Minutes, and they were saying, they were trying to contextualize it and saying, you know, when we read this, we hear men who are desperate. These are men who are worried that their families are going to be hurt and that their property is going to be taken away and that their religion is going to be taken away. And, you know, you can just hear the desperation in their voices. And while I absolutely agree with that, the only thing I could keep thinking of was at the exact time that this panel was happening, there was um, a trial going on in Colorado City. And now I know that it's sort of this, I, I say it's like this ex-Mormon Godwin's law to compare Joseph Smith to Warren Jeffs. You know, people will say, oh, you know, Joseph Smith is like Warren Jeffs and vice versa to say that they're both pedophiles or something. And, and I think that that's a lazy and probably inaccurate comparison. But I had to raise my hand and say to them and say, okay, I understand how you're contextualizing it. It's true these men felt defensive and they felt threatened. But I'm telling you, the, the Council of 50 Minutes, the way that these are being read are almost precisely the way that Warren Jeffs tries to run his church. And the same arguments could be applied to him. Uh, the FLDS think that their property is literally been, being taken away by the government. They're literally being put in jail. Their families are being broken up. They are feeling very persecuted. And do we give them the same excuse for their violent rhetoric as we would to Joseph Smith? If we're going to contextualize it, you can absolutely see why Mormons were seen as a threat in the same way that FLDS is seen as a threat today. And again, I'm not trying to make a lazy ex-Mormon comparison. I just think if you're going to give that critique or that context, it has to go both ways. I would agree with you. Um, you know, and, and there are some, there, uh, we've talked about this, you and I, just on a personal level. Um, Hans Mill is, is by far the most egregious crime that the Missourians committed against the Mormons. Um, yet, at the same time, there is evidence that the first shots um, that were fired at Hans Mill were actually Mormons firing upon the, the militia. Um, I believe it was the Livingston militia, if I, if I remember correctly. Um, but that the, what was done, I'm not trying to excuse what the Missourians did. Uh, they committed murder. Um, and, and, uh, but at the same time, we have Crooked River, 
in which the Mormons were um, uh, murdering and mutilating state militia. Um, and, you know, so, uh, yeah, the numbers, I, I can't remember if it, it's around a dozen. Do you remember, is it about a dozen people, uh, men were murdered at Hans Mills? Yeah, that, yeah. Yeah, you know, and, and I think it was two or three Missourians that were murdered at uh, um, militia were uh, murdered at, at Crooked River, which, by the way, is why um, Lil Burn Boggs uh, declared his his um, famous ex, uh, extermination order was because of the Battle of Crooked River. The And the Livingston um, militia did not know. Um, there's no way they could have known about that extermination order. And in fact, if you read the extermination order, the extermination order, when they when he writes exterminate, he means removal. Um, the in there there are multiple, not multiple, but there are at least two uh, or more um, definitions for extermination. And, and Boggs used extermination in that particular way for removal. He, he said that, yes, the Mormons are in armed conflict with us because of that battle where Mormons attacked um, state militia troops. And, and, um, and he wanted the removal of the Mormons. Um, so, you know, the, yeah, the, definitely um, both sides in Missouri um were um at fault for the escalation of violence and and for those and for perpetrating violence um I, you know I, i'm feeling like maybe uh we should move on to just a, a couple of things that i wanted to say about the, this uh entire Council of 50 Minutes. Bill McKinnon has come out with two books now. One, uh, the second volume of it, Swords Point, was just published a month or two ago. And so I told Bill, I said, after reading the Council of 50 Minutes, I, I think that we have to look at more the Mormon... Um, theology and Mormon ideology completely different than we did than we did before that book in short's point way before the council of 50 so he didn't have access to that but what I said to bill is that at sword's point okay council of 50 is theory council of 50 obviously, uh, they did not implement this rhetoric. They didn't go out and wipe out all the Gentiles. They didn't um, uh, uh, massacre all the people in Warsaw, or they didn't cut Lilleborn's Boggs' head off, though Joe Smith did try to kill him with, with having uh, Orrin Porter Rockwell go and shoot him, but uh, Boggs lived through it. Um, so, you know, Joe, can I interrupt and ask you, let's talk about that for a minute, because 
we know that the narrative that is sort of painted of Joseph Smith, if you go down to the Joseph Smith Memorial Building and you watch a video, he's sort of this glossy, soft-lit character with golden locks and smooth skin and and just beautiful and admired by all. But let's talk about how men like Porter Rockwell function in Joseph's life and what their purpose was for just a minute because I I look at I look at these stories and I can see Joseph Smith as that character sometimes portrayed, but it is also true that he had men around him that um, were sort of known for their bad reputation. And Christopher C. Smith, I've played this clip um, before at Sunstone. There was a panel that where they did the four views of Joseph Smith, someone arguing that he was, you know, a con man all the way to inspired prophet and everybody in between. And Christopher C. Smith, the historian, had to argue for his position, whether he agreed with it or not. His position to argue was that Joseph Smith was a con man. And he sort of glibly says that, um, you know, people say that Joseph Smith was unfortunate in um, having all of these friends who end up being crooks and criminals and, and dangerous men. And Christopher argued that Joseph knew exactly who they were, and that's why he chose them to be his friends. So do you want to talk about their function really quick? Well, there's, yeah, there's a real problem with, with trying to distance Joseph Smith from any of those people. I, I, I look at John C. Bennett as uh, maybe the prime example. I mean, we um, in the Utah church, and, and well, actually, I think all branches of Mormonism have have made him a villain and, and uh you know, Joseph Smith had him live in his home. He made him um, associate. Was it associate, a president, or you know, and and uh, you know, he he made him uh, uh, second in command of the Nauvoo Legion, right behind Joseph Smith being lieutenant general, which was the highest rank, uh, is the highest rank actually. Only George Washington. Um, up to that point had ever been, you know, with that position. Um, so, you know, so yeah, Joseph Smith uh, associated and, and had these kinds of people around him. Um, uh, the um, um, Hodge brothers, you know, were, were river rats. They were called river rats. And uh, Bill, again, Bill Shepard has done an amazing amount of work and shown that the Hodge brothers were uh, criminals, and yet Joseph Smith, you know, those were the kinds of people that he had around him. Now, Brigham Young, it's quite interesting, actually. Brigham Young actually um, made sure that the uh, Hodge brothers were available to be arrested and then hung for um, murder. Um, so in some ways, Brigham Young was actually trying to clean some of that up. Um, and Bill, uh, Bill Shepard was the one who did the research on that. Um, the, uh, uh, Joseph Jackson, you know, uh, was a counterfeiter and, uh, did all kinds of things yet. You know, I mean, again, he, he was wanting to marry, he was so close. He was wanting to marry Hiram Smith's oldest daughter. Um, which ended up that there is also evidence that Joe Smith was making overtures to have her become one of his wives. Um, and it was actually over that daughter of Hiram Smith that uh, Jackson and Smith parted ways. 
Um, and Rockwell was a childhood friend of the Smiths, and he was younger than Joe Smith. So, and and my understanding is that Rockwell was a small person, uh, meaning, well, I think he was a small person in in morals and all of that stuff, but in stature he was small. And so Joseph Smith protected him when they were children. I don't know if uh, Orrin Porter Rockwell was at the the founding meeting um, where the six met to organize Mormonism, but his mother was there, and his mother was baptized along with Joseph Smith Sr. there in Manchester, uh, New York. And, uh, you know, so th they go back. They go back um, to Joseph Smith's teen years. And... Definitely Rockwell uh, would would put his life in any uh, way to stop people from hurting Joseph Smith. And clearly, he would do whatever. I mean, when Joseph Smith sent him to Missouri to kill Boggs, um, there was no question. And Rockwell escaped. He then went back. I think it was something to do with his family. He was arrested and, and thrown in, in jail to be tried, uh, the Missouri officials uh, threw it out and said that there was not enough evidence. And when he made it back um, and, and showed up at the Smith's house, at the mansion house, people couldn't even recognize him. And it was only because of Joseph Smith's long association that he could see that it was Porter Rockwell and, and had him come in and, and eat with them. Um, so yeah, clearly Rockwell would have done anything for Joseph Smith and, and actually did. I mean, he, he murdered, um, uh, I think his name's Worrell in, uh, on the road to or from Nauvoo. I can't remember how that worked. Um, uh, and, uh, right shortly after, um, the Smiths were murdered. So yeah, there's no doubt. There's no doubt that was there. Um, so but I, I, well, let's, I, let's that, finish off the Missouri period and then we'll take a break and then we'll um, talk about the frontier period, turn this into two episodes. So what else do you want to say about Missouri? Uh, well, that's, yeah, there, there's a really important, and that is going to take just a few minutes. Um, so the, um, well, the, as the Mormons left Nauvoo, in 1846, they um, they were in pretty bad shape in the sense of of you know as most immigrants would be um, of not having a lot of supplies not and definitely not having hard money. Um, and guess who it was that took the Mormons in and made sure that the Mormons were able to um, make it uh, through that, that winter. Actually, it was a couple, multiple winters, and, and have supplies enough to do that. Just guess who it was that came to the rescue of the, of the Mormons. Lindsay? Sorry, it was muted. 
Oh, that's all right. Okay, so I, 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 the answer is Missourians, by the way. So tell, say that, just so you can add that in. Say Missourians. Missourians. Fantastic, Lindsay. Um, how did you know that? <laughs> um, Richard Bennett does a fantastic article in uh, Mormon Historical Studies called We Had Everything to Procure from Missouri, The Missouri Lifeline to the Mormon Exodus. 1846 to 1850. So Bennett actually outlines in that how the Mormons worked for the Missourians and made money. So when I hear people say, oh, the Missourians just wanted to kill the Mormons, you know, that extermination, or, well, how do you answer that in 1846 that it was the Missourians who saved the Mormons' fanny to be able to get to Utah. One of the things that's very interesting that's found in the Warren Foote diary um, of June 1846, and, and I, that whole summer is quite interesting to read, but I just pulled one entry out to show you how the Missourians felt about the Mormons being right there. They, they were right there in Iowa territory near um, the Missouri border. This is on the 16th. So Warren Foote says, I sold a bridle today for two bushels of corn. The inhabitants are very scared. He's talking about the Missourians. He had to go into Missouri in order to sell the bridle. They are afraid that the Mormons will soon be upon them and slay men, women, and children. Now, many people have interpreted that as just rhetoric. And actually, Foote even says, oh, that's just nonsense. We would never do that. There's some problems with that. First of all, the Council of 50, they actually say they're going to do that. The Missourians, I don't know. There, there's a lot of evidence that, that there was a lot of loose tongues among the members of the 50. And, and, and the thing is, is Joseph Smith had non-Mormons. Brigham Young expelled all those non-Mormons from the Council of 50. But but even at that, Brigham Young, throughout the minutes, is still complaining that hey, people are talking about what's happening in this meeting, and you've been you've made an oath, an oath that you would have your throat cut if you divulge what's happened in this meeting, and it needs to stop. I don't think it ever did stop, but um, the. So the Missourians were fearful for their life. And then what even compounded that was the Mormons were having the Indians come in to the Mormon camp and discuss. So later in Foote's um, diary, he talks about how the Missourians are saying, hey, you're going to have the Indians come and kill us all. So, and again, Foote says, oh, no, we wouldn't. You know, we're, we're not that kind of people. And most likely they weren't at that time. But definitely the rhetoric of this fear was existing. Uh, so, yeah, so that that should wind up our Missouri discussion. Okay, do you want to talk about Nauvoo, too, while we're on this episode? Um, what would you like to talk about with Nauvoo? Um, I, I, I pretty well wanted to, I mean, I felt that the, the 50 minutes plus Mike Quinn's article 
you know, it really the Mike Quinn's article covers the Nauvoo period so well. I'm feeling like um, the 50 minutes or what's the big deal in that? Um, is there something specific you wanted to talk about more with Nauvoo, though? I just wanted to know if you saw any connections between as Joseph Smith really ramps up plural marriage, if that equates to his violence at all. Well, I think, again, I think that the 50 minutes bear that out. Um, I think that this idea of uniting the Lamanites to just, you know, that the time of the Gentiles is now done. It's over with. And we can now forget about the Gentiles, meaning that we can destroy the Gentiles. And, and that uh, the time is now for the Indians to unite and, um, and the Mormons to go, you know, to be with them. Um, and like I said, you know, that, that thing about, you know, that's during Joseph Smith's life. That's April 11th, 1844. You know, Phelps is, is bringing up about women being abused by the Gentiles. And, and that, you know, and he, he, he immediately connects that with getting together with the red men, as he calls them, uh, the American Indians. Okay, well, let's stop here, and then I want to start talking about the frontier period and the massacres. So, um, unless you have anything else to say, we'll end this episode and we'll start a new one. That sounds good. to support Utah women making local music. If you like the music on this podcast, it comes from a band called Lady Murasaki. You can check them out at ladymurasaki.bandcamp.com.